Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Second Chronicles 3, uh, 2 Chronicles 1 and 2, Solomon and God established the right relationship. In chapter 2, Solomon sets up and organizes all the people, the admin for the temple construction. Now, 1 Kings 5 is where you'd see the, the, the matching narrative that goes with the Chronicles account of the building of the temple. There's far more detail here in Chronicles than there was in Kings. In fact, the amount of space that the temple takes up in Chronicles is significant compared to Kings. It's much more of the focus, in large part because the writers were getting ready to build the, the second temple. Um, we talked last week about the temple being an image of Christ, an image of the church, an image of Christians. Um, and I'll kind of, I'll repeat some of those references as to where we get that from. But when we get to chapter three, it's time to build. It's time to get a temple built. A lot of people talk about doing things. Solomon's unique in that he actually does what he's, he's talked about doing. So verse one, now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father, David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Verse 1 makes it very clear that where the temple gets built was significant. It's important. It's all about location in verse 1. Verse 2 is all about the when he builds the temple and the dating of it. Uh, so we get a sense with verses 1 and 2 that this is kind of a whole new section of the book or a whole new passage. Uh, Moriah means in the Hebrew, chosen by Yah which is why you got the ah at the end of it. Abe and Isaac, this location is pretty significant biblically. Genesis 22, it's where Abraham brought Isaac up the hill on Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. It's a very specific place. God stops Abraham, if you remember the story. And he says, I'll provide myself sacrifice. And he, he, he brings a ram to Abraham to do the sacrifice. Genesis 22 then, this place gets the name or the location, Jehovah-Jireh, God provides. So this promise, this location being called Jehovah-Jireh as an additional name becomes the promise of God providing. The entire temple location then becomes an image of that. Um, it becomes a site of thousands of sacrifices between Abraham and now. The threshing floor of Ornan is, or Oman is this location. Um, literally, this was pointed out as a location, it says, in reference to appeared to his father David. Remember, the plague was coming because of David's sin. Angel brings the plague. David literally sees an angel pointing a sword at this location, which is where the plague stops. This plague of death ends here. So, this idea of the, the location being important is significant. And then verse 2, And he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. When he builds, it's important. So you think, what's he been doing for four years or for the last three years? He's been preparing. That's what we got in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So verse 2 shows us this is 480 years after the Exodus. Um, three years of waiting, and then the building starts. So it's 967 BC that the first temple begins construction. It's interesting then when Jesus says, 
Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That three days has some significance in that it took Solomon three years to start building the temple. It takes Jesus three days to finish building the temple. And so you have some symmetry there. So he begins to build, he gets going on it, then we get to verse 3. This is the foundation which Solomon laid for the building of the house of God. The length was 60 cubits by cubits according to the former measure, and the width 20 units. It gets very specific. The former measure thing there is a commentary that the writers put in because the length of the cubit had changed over you know, a few hundred years. So there's a, a note here of, of that for specificity. By today's standards, we would say this is a 90-foot by 30-foot um, room. Honestly, you guys, that's not that big. That's not much bigger than the room we're sitting in right now. It's a fairly small building when it comes to foundation size or footprint. It had two rooms, the Holy of Holies, and then it had the, the, the holy space or the, the place where all the implements were. Then it has a porch. The porch is bigger in verse 4. The, and the vestibule that was in front of the sanctuary was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, 30 feet. And the height was 120, so super tall, and overlaid with inside of pure gold. Some people say the 120 is a mistranslation, that it should be 1 20th of height there. So it depend, it's not a huge thing, but people like to know where we have those issues in the Bible. Had to be impressive. Verse 5, the larger room that he paneled with cypress and he overlaid with fine gold and he carved palm trees and chain work on it and he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty and the gold was gold from Pervaim and he overlaid the house and the beams and the doorposts, its walls, its doors with gold and he carved the cherubim on the walls. So essentially you've got this holy of holies, this inner space to the, the temple. Everything's covered in gold. There's nothing that's not gold appealing to the eye other than this curtain that's going to separate the Holy of Holies. And that's made of other things. So the paneling, the gold, the decorations, all of this is for beauty. The, if, as an image of the heart or the image of the inside of Jesus or the, an image of the inside of the church, what God intends for those concealed spaces is absolute purity. And gold being a metal of heaven is that something's consecrated or set apart from God. It's a heavenly thing when that happens. So for every believer, um, when you set your heart aside for God, that becomes pure and precious. It's, it's, I think, part of why God forgives sins is that if you want to consecrate your heart for God, you can't purify it from sin. God will do that for you so that it can be an image of God's temple. Uh, the church as a temple, Ephesians 2.21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. If God's going to dwell in you, that space needs to be pure. And it needs to look like this. So a lot of what Solomon's doing here, he's doing to make a beautiful building. What Jesus did and what Jesus founded in the church and what Jesus does in your life are also to create a house for God, a space for God to dwell. Cherubim on the walls is an image of the heavenly host. Cherubim is another word for angel. Um, These images of, of... the protection of a spiritual army over where God's house is going to be. The temple then becomes a physical picture of what God's going to do in the spirit through Jesus, through the church, through people. And he made the most holy place 
Its length was according to the width of the house, 20 cubits, with its width being 20 cubits. So essentially you've got a 30 by 30 by 30 foot cube that becomes the Holy of Holies. It's, a, it's great for Minecraft if you're trying to build this. It would be that nice little square room, everything on the inside overlaid with gold. He overlaid it with 600 talents of gold. The weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper area with gold. I think it's an interesting note that the writer puts in the weight of the nails. That means that when Solomon built it, they recorded the weight of the nails. And I think it's because they're super proud that they had buckets of golden nails that they put together. And in the, in the idea of setting something aside for God or making a house for God, there's really no limit to the degree to which they want to contribute to that and help make that happen. 45,000 pounds of gold then is what they're talking about. The gold then is used as this metal. It never rusts. It's incorruptible. Um, we, the, some recent archaeology um, has found that they've dug up ancient scarabs, which was like an Egyptian coin, and they found these coins in Israel where they've dug them up. And part of the, what is interesting about some of the coins still have gold flakes in them, and the gold still shines like gold. It looks like gold. And that's after being buried for a thousand years or more. The idea of gold being this metal that God uniquely made to never rust, never tarnish, never show signs of corruption. It's a really unique metal in that sense. There's a few other ones, but gold has that yellow luster that looks gorgeous. And if that's what's in the heart, pure gold, so to speak, then this area, this space, the nails are, are no small sacrifice, but they're important. You don't want to just use an iron nail on here because that brings in that corruption that can rust and fade away. Interestingly, Jesus gets nailed with iron nails because that's what the earth does to something that's pure. But they couldn't touch what was on the inside. They couldn't touch the spirit of Jesus or do anything to corrupt that. So the heart being flawless or golden in nature is what God, Jesus desires of a true and living church. This is why Satan loves it when there's corruption in the church. Loves going after church leaders and making a scene and making a news story about them. The world embraces whenever a church leader falls, whenever there's sin in the church. It's something that the world loves to make known to everyone. But God's desire for the church is that that's just never the case. And the church is the most powerful when I think the people in the church are seeking that kind of purity in their life. Everything down to the nails. Verse 10, in the most holy place... He made two cherubim, really powerful image here, fashioned by carving and overlaid them with gold. And the wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits overall in length. One wing of the one cherub was five cubits touching the wall of the room. The other wing was five cubits and they were touching the wing of the other cherub. One wing of the other cherub was five cubits touching the wall of the room. And the other wing was also five cubits, which would be seven and a half feet touching the wing of the other cherub. In other words, there's two cherubs standing, dividing the room into thirds, actually a little different than thirds. One wing touches each wall, the other wing touches the other cherub in the middle, creating a nice little archway underneath the wings of these cherubs. What sits under the archway? We'll get to that. But this is the big thing, verse 13, the wings of these cherubim span 20 cubits overall. They stood on their feet and they faced inward. 
every ancient false idol and false temple we've ever seen in the history of the world, whatever the deity is or the God is, when you walk into their space, they're facing the human that walks in the room. The, the temple of Zeus had a big statue of Zeus waiting to be worshipped, where you can come up to Zeus's feet and pay homage to Zeus. This is unique that the Jews take these two carved images, and when you walk in, you're looking at their backside. They're facing inward. They're not in that room so that you can worship them. They're in that room to pay homage to the thing you're actually there to worship. Remember, the Jews don't do idol worship, and you'd say, but they have two carved images in this room. The point of these carved images isn't to worship them, and I think this is one of those things where we can tell people to relax a little bit. It's not that the Jews didn't know how to carve things or model things. The problem with the carved image is when it got worshipped. But when it's done to the glory of God, the homage to God, they put images of cherub on the walls all around, palm trees all around, fruit all around, gold everywhere. Everything's been worked, inlaid. Then these two beautiful statues, um, 15 feet tall, the wings spread out, meeting in the middle. The only person to see this is once a year, one priest gets to go through that curtain to tend to this area. A Yom Kippur is the day it happens on. Um, it, this is not a room where other people get to go into. I mean, in, in essence, there's a necessity to the once a year kind of thing. But the idea is this is a heavenly space that's reserved for God. And in the sense that Jesus, the church, and our own hearts are like this, there's something that's inside us that shouldn't be contrary to God. A lot of times that's the problem with hypocrisy. We put on a good show on the outside, but what's on the inside is still struggling. And I think what God wants of us is that what's on the inside serves God and what's on the outside isn't that showy at all, right? When you see the outside of the temple, it's just stone. But on the inside, it's all gold. It's just precious what's on the inside. So this heavenly space is meant for God and for reverence to God. And then you get verse 14. Here's the veil. He made the veil of blue, purple, and crimson, just like the tabernacle. If you want to get a sense of those colors and what those dyes were, I talked about that back when we did the tabernacle chapter. You can just go back and re-listen to that. And then here we add fine linen and wove cherubim into it, just like the tabernacle. Why didn't they use the tabernacle curtain? Because it wasn't big enough. So they made a bigger one here. This is the same barrier between the Holy of Holies and the outer room um, that by the first century with Herod's temple, it's an 18-inch thick curtain. So not like a curtain that we see in our house, right? This is massive layers of leather and woven linens and everything else. It's amazingly heavy. Uh, they say in the Jewish recordings it took over 200 people to hang this curtain when they did this. So it's a pretty significant piece of cloth that got tore, right? Tabernacle then um, had a less thick of a curtain when we read about that, um, but this one definitely gets thicker over time. The separation between God and man gets thicker over time. Sets it apart, makes the space sacred, it's dedicated, it's God's space. Jesus, with his own blood, Hebrews 9.12, entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So this space becomes Jesus' space when he does this. The church then also can enter into this presence. Hebrews 10.19, the book of Hebrews makes this comparison to the temple for us. Again, I'd like to think this is original, but we have this explained to us in Hebrews. Brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way in which he consecrated, purified, set apart through the veil that is his flesh. So that veil then, we're told, is an image of Jesus' flesh. And when his flesh got torn on the cross, so did the veil between God and man. What humanity did to Jesus made it so God didn't want humanity involved in that process anymore. It opened the path or a new way for us to get to the Holy of Holies, the heart of God. And in that sense, our heart can become like that heart because when you touch God's heart, it purifies you. It doesn't corrupt God. It goes one direction when that happens. I just think that's amazing. What a great hope. I cannot be perfect and I can still approach God. And to do it with humility and grace, he purifies me if I let him. Verse 15. Also he made in front of the temple two pillars. These pillars have always confounded. They're just this amazing 35 cubits high, be around 50 feet tall. And the capital that was on top of each of them was five cubits. If you took this style of architecture, there'd be a major pillar in the middle, but that capital was another entire rock that would sit on top of it. So if it's 35 foot high pillar and the capital was five cubits, that would be 40 or a 60 foot high structure that stands at two of them standing out in front. He made wreaths of chain work as in the inner sanctuary and he put them on top of the pillars and he made 100 pomegranates and put them on the wreaths of the chain work. So speaking of the fruitfulness, when you do fruit, it's an image of fruitfulness. The chains, an image of unity or binding things together as one and they're all linked together. So these same pomegranates would be images you would see on the robes of the priest along with bells. And as an images of fruitfulness and sharing, and, and there'd be bells that went with the fruit. So this idea that the priest's job was to share or to make known the fruits of God. So where there's unity, there's fruit. Where there's division, you don't have fruit. And you got these two pillars. Verse 17, we'll find out more about the pillars. Then he set up the pillars before the temple, and on the right hand and another on the left. And he called them... By the one, the, uh, he called the name of the one on the right hand, Jachin, which means he will establish. And the name of the one on the left is called Boaz, in his strength. Interesting, we have a character named Boaz in, in the Old Testament too. But if you put them together, you're walking up to the temple, you see these big, huge pillars. It's interesting, there's a very small little room that's the heart of God. But what's outside of the God are the, of this temple are massive things. The eye would go to these pillars. What's on the pillars? The fruit of God. What's behind the pillars? The heart of God. What's on the other side of those pillars is there's a veil between me and God, but there's these massive pillars, an image of strength and power covered with fruit. And I walk up and I got my two kids with me and they say, what are those pillars? Oh, those pillars got a name. He will establish in his strength. Well, that sounds like one name. No, that's two names. That one's called, and they had to explain it. That's he will establish, Jochen. That's Boaz. That's the second pillar called in his strength. And right between those two is where the priests would go in and out to set up the showbread and the fellowship, the prayer of incense, the light of the word, the showbread of fellowship. And the priests would take care of that, maintain it. And they would walk between these two pillars of this promise and I think that the idea of these, in 1 Kings 7, we know that they're made of bronze, which is kind of the earthly metal. Bronze does tarnish. It does have to be maintained. There's human work that has to go into keeping bronze looking nice. So they have to be washed, scrubbed. Every person that would come towards these things, then here's a promise of God that the building itself is not the end game. 
he will establish is a future tense promise. There's something that's coming in the future. And I think that these pillars were there so that everybody that approached the heart of God would understand that there's a work of God happening that will happen probably in a future generation. Something's coming. And it's interesting that we today have the promise of Jesus' return. It's like all of humanity through all of history has a promise of God for which to hope upon. And even the Jews had that in the form of these two pillars. Humans then build this image of the relationship, which is in itself a promise that God will build a relationship. We build a physical temple. He's going to build a spiritual temple and consecrate something unto himself. This isn't the house of God. It's a promise of what's coming that will be the house of God. And it will follow this pattern or this image. The, the pillars then become very significant. If I think of the pillars in my life or in the life of the church or in Jesus' life, he will establish in his strength remains there. That's the gospel message that we preach to people. It's the thing that consecrates our heart. It's the thing that we go in and out and in between every time we do anything in the spirit. It's the way the church operates or how the church should operate is we're trusting that he will build it in his strength. And when we look at Jesus, we see that he actually did everything in his own strength. None of his disciples helped him rise from the dead. It was a God alone act when it came to Jesus. You get to the next chapter, chapter four, and now we're dealing with the furnishings, all the stuff that goes into this temple complex. Moreover, he made the bronze altar. Bronze is the earthly matter. It's outside the temple. 20 cubits was its length, 20 cubits was its width, and 10 cubits was its height. So 30 by 30 by 15 feet high. This is massive, way bigger than the tabernacle. So as the curtain gets thicker over time, so does the altar of sacrifice to atone for sin over time. That gets bigger too. Same footprint as the Holy of Holies. I think that's interesting. The heart of God is 30 by 30. This altar of sacrifice is a perfect fit, 30 by 30. The bronze alloy of copper and some sort of hardening metal. We don't know what the hardening metal was, but it would have been an unavoidable thing to see. It would have blocked the view of the bottom of the two pillars. You'd be walking up, you'd see this massive unavoidable altar there. <coughs> to approach God is to sacrifice or atone for sin for a mighty and holy God. There's a, a, a sacrifice that needs to be there that burns away the sin. Evil can't abide in the presence of holiness. And I think this sacrificial process was to protect the humans, not to protect God. It's not that God needs the sacrifices. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But humans need to approach God seeing and dealing with their sin before they even think of getting close to the heart of God. Even the priests, if they didn't go through very complex cleansing processes outlined in Leviticus, they were, they were killed in trying to do it. Verse 2, then he made the sea of cast bronze. Ten cubits, this is a, the sea is kind of an, a, a name or nomenclature for a giant pool of water or a basin of water, massive. Ten cubits from one brim to the other, that's the, the diameter of it, 15 feet wide. It's completely round. Its height was five cubits or seven feet tall, so just tall enough to where the average person can't see over the lip of this basin or, or this pool of water. A line of 30 cubits measured its circumference, and under it was the likeness of oxen encircling it all around. Ten to a cubit, all the way around the sea, the oxen were cast in two rows, and when it was cast, 
It stood on the 12 oxen, three looking toward the north, three to the west, three to the south, and three looking towards the east. So all these oxen are like the legs of this basin. So the, the foundation of what it would sit on. So it sits on the backs of these 12 oxen. What do oxen represent? Uh, a lot of times the oxen in the Renaissance and medieval era were associated with the, the gospel of Luke. Luke was the Gentile or the working man, and when he wrote his gospel, he did it as a labor. He was paid to do it. He was writing an official history. So the ox is usually an image of the work of humanity for the service of God. That's what holds up this cleansing bowl. And there's people that think that the water that was up above, kind of like a water tower, the natural gravity of it, they had some sort of piping system to where the water came out the oxen's mouths or something. Bible doesn't say that, but how do you wash? They'd have, you know, you'd, you know, maybe the horns were little on-off handles. Kind of twist a horn, you wash your hands and clean up. But the whole point of the sea is there's enough water there to where hundreds of priests could wash their hands and wash their feet before they did the work of God. They'd come to this cleansing place, this, this piece. I didn't finish reading this section, though. Uh, so north, south, east, west. And the sea was set upon them on all their backs. They pointed, the backs of the oxen pointed inward, which means their heads pointed outward. It was a hand's breadth thick, and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom, and it contained 3,000 baths. So that's about 45 feet around, 15 feet across, three inches thick with about 11,000 gallons of water in it. Massive. On top of a hill. So somebody had to carry that water up the hill. And that's what the, the Levites were for. If you were a low-ranking Levite, you got to carry a lot of water. Or if they had some Gentiles that they brought into service, they could help with that too. The, the oxen then are an image. The number 12 becomes significant. Number 12 in the government is always some sort of structure or civic leadership or organization or administration. There's 12 tribes in Israel. Most people thought the oxen represented the 12 tribes doing the work of God. New Testament people, the number 12 goes with disciples. So there's 12 disciples that initially start out by doing the work of God. Um, and, and again, you'd say, well, Judas fell away before the work started. Yeah, but they drew straws and they replaced Judas to get back to that number 12. In the same way that um, the Levites were taken out of the 12 tribes to be servants to God, and then they doubled the Joseph tribe into Manasseh and Ephraim. Verse 6. He also had 10, ten lavers. So these are smaller little... Uh, wash tubs, so to speak. He put five on the right side, five on the left of the temple to wash in them such things as they offered for the burnt offering that they would wash in them. But the sea was for the priest to wash in. So you want to wash your hands and your feet, you do it over at the sea. But then all around were these mobile carts that they could move around. If you've ever gutted an animal, which I hadn't done for my whole happy life until last year with Grant, water is a really important part of butchering an animal. If you want to keep that meat fairly clean, you rinse it, you water it, you, that's where you pick off the nasty parts. Um, but washing that meat uh, becomes a part where when you then put it onto the grill, you're not dumping a bunch of blood to kill out your fire and drench all your heat. So washing it and, and getting it ready and prepared was what you would do with these lavers in verse 6. Um, this was a bloody business. Like the outside of the temple had a lot of flesh and gore and that, but this is uh, to make that as clean as possible. That's what these lavers were for. Verse 7, we get lampstands. He made 10 lampstands of gold according to their design. 
and he set them in the temple, five on the right side and five on the left. He also made 10 tables and placed them on the temple, five to the right side, five to the left. And he made 100 bowls of gold, putting 10 tables, 10 bowls per table. All of the outside is brass. Everything on the inside is made of gold. You get the, the where the metals are here. Uh, we should note that 10 lampstands, 10 tables, and 10 times the bowls, everything's been multiplied by 10. So where the veil gets thicker over time, the altar of sacrifice gets bigger over time, so do the images of God's love and God's fellowship and the word of God. Because as they're writing Chronicles, they're actually expanding the, the collection of God's words. So when they read Chronicles, they actually have the bulk of the Old Testament available to read to them. When they made the tabernacle, they didn't have any of those prophets. They didn't have the book of Kings yet. So the word of God has expanded over time in addition to the, the need for repentance and the barrier to God's holy of holies. These tools that God's given them also multiply. I just thought that was a nice thought. Lampstands are in there for light. The tables are the fellowship bread goes on these tables. The task or the work of the priests to keep the lamps lit just multiplied by 10. The task and the work of the priests to keep the tables with fresh showbread, that just multiplied by 10. So luckily God has multiplied the number of people in Israel. Um, furthermore, verse 9, he made the court of the priests and the great court and the doors for the court and overlaid these doors with bronze. And he set the sea to the right side towards the southeast. So the sea didn't block your path. So for most people coming into the temple, the sea was off to the side. It was the altar that most people were looking at. The altar, the pillars behind it, and then this door of the holies where you maybe once a year when the priest walked through that curtain, you could see a flash of gold come from in there. So knowing that there was a holy of holies, but really having access to it became something that was something to pine for. All this majesty that God hides. And I think it's interesting, as we just read in, the, in Luke chapter 8, the point of all this isn't to hide it. The point of all of it is at the end of days to reveal the whole plan so we know it. I love that we live in an era where we can have Hebrews to show us what all this meant. They didn't even have that. They're just doing it because God said to. The court of the priests, there's an inner court for the priests to do all their work. There's an outer court for all the people. By the time we get to Jesus, there's three courts. There's the court of the priests, there's the great court for all the Jewish people, and then they made another court called the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles and the other one are places where people could come and pray. That's where there were Levites teaching the word. There were um, 12 cycles that we saw in chapter 2 of musicians making music round the clock. So you could come in, get a concert, get some Bible teaching. If you wanted a Bible retreat, you just headed up to the temple anytime that your little fellowship wanted to head up there. And there were people to teach. You didn't even have to schedule your teacher. You didn't have to pay for them. They are all there to take care of it. And if the sacrifices were there and they were doing fellowship offerings, you had barbecue to eat. This was a great retreat. It was a vacation center for all of Israel. And I think that's what God wanted. He wanted his people to have joy. So all of this is for the teaching and fellowship with God. Yes, there's a holy of holies, but there's also an access to it that's by proximity. Think of Jesus. Yes, there's something pure and perfect to Jesus, but he also gave us fellowship with him. That's the whole purpose of him coming to earth. Think of the church. Yes, there's a part of the church that's for us. We study the word together. We do things together. But when a church becomes too insulated, it's not doing its job for these courtyards. 
there should also be an exterior face of the, of the church, like the oxen facing outward, like the courtyards receiving people for prayer and fellowship. There should be a welcome to the church. Think of your own heart, another image of the temple according to the New Testament. There should be a part of your heart that's private to you and God. Nobody gets there but you and God. It's sacred, and it's precious, and it's gold. But there should be an outward-facing part of who you are as a person that's welcoming and inviting, and it's there for fellowship, for teaching, for barbecue feasts. There's a part of you where you let people see that glimpse of God that's in you. And the images are just a great fit. Then Huram, I think this is interesting. So far, everything we've seen built up to first tent, it says he set the sea on the right. The he in verse 10 is Solomon. He set the sea on the right. But notice in verse 11, we get Huram, this Gentile that he's recruited. This is, I think, an interesting difference. If you look at this chapter in the last few chapters as images of God the Father, God the Son, Solomon being the, the Son here, having everything provided by the Father, but the Son carries out the work, then this is a piece that the Son is not doing by the, the way that it's structured in the, in, the, in the language. Verse 11, then Huram made the pots and the shovels and the bowls. So Huram finished doing the work that he was to do for King Solomon, for the house of God. So when it comes to building the house of God, there's parts of that building that God takes care of, that the Son took care of. But there's parts of that building that, interestingly, the son recruits humanity to help do it. And I, I always thought this was just a beautiful like thing. Part of God building the church is he does recruit us to help build the church. And we're not essential, and we don't bring the purity to it. God does that. The son does that. But there is this, other, this massive job that God wants us to help with when it comes to building things. There's work to be done. So verse 12, the two pillars and the bowl-shaped capitals were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals, which were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on the pillars. God's going to build it in his strength, but he recruits this Huram, and, and to not depart from that language, he recruits a Gentile to help build the fruit that everybody sees that represents the heart of God. And, I, and, this, and these chains, this unity that brings it together. The fruit that is going to decorate those two pillars called he will establish in his strength. He will make fruit. Psalm 1.3, he shall be like the tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. When God is about the business of moving and shaking a culture, a people, building a church, or even healing your heart. This is something that it's going to, if you let God work in your life, it'll prosper. Major images of Jesus's ministry here. God brings forth fruit in us so that other people can see it. What comes out of our mouth, the work of our hands, Proverbs 12, 14, are things that people see in our lives. They see how we talk. They see what we do. What an outsider sees then are these two massive pillars covered with fruit that the Gentiles made. I just, the imagery here is so great. John 15, 8, here's another one. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. This is how God gets glorified. It's when his people do the work that he's commanded them to do. Just like Solomon, the son, commanded the Gentile to go do some work for him. And these founders... Foundries were amazing. They were on display too. He's building down by the Jordan. 
and he's doing all this work down there. Uh, this is part of what gets the Queen of Sheba to come up and see what's going on, are these massive foundry works that Huram has set up to do all this. Verse 14 continues the list. He made the carts and the levers of the carts, one sea, 12 oxen under it. All of this is the bronze work. Also the pots, the shovels, the forks, all their articles. Huram, his master craftsman, made of the burnished bronze for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. In the plain of the Jordan, the king had cast in clay, clay molds between Succoth and Zerida, huge territory. So thousands of people working down by the plains of the Jordan to make all these metal pieces go. That all took timber that doesn't really grow down there. So they had to ship in all this timber, which in chapter 2 is coming from, from the sea a long ways away. And Solomon, the son, had all these articles made in such great abundance that the weight of the bronze was not determined. More than could be measured. And again, when God says things like the sand on the seashore or the, you know, the, 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 the stars in the heavens, beyond counting becomes something that's significant. It's not like the Jews didn't know how to count things. Look at the book of Numbers, right? They know how to count in the hundreds of thousands. So the amount of work that's done down in that valley is without measure. And Jesus says the same thing about the church going out to all nations. There's no measuring what God's doing at this point. So as they move at the command of the sun, they do this work that's pretty amazing. They, had, they then had to haul all that countless bronze up to the Temple Mount. So all the work's happening at Jordan. This is, I think, about an eight-mile trip. That's a lot of hauling that has to get done. There's a lot of burdens to bear. So huge foundry, massive ovens, melting and purifying the metals into molds. They got a trained leader to help them do it, people to pour it. And this becomes a glorious work in and of itself, and it's not even the temple itself. It's not the house of God itself. It's everything around the house of God. There's no mention of gold being worked on by Huram, right? In fact, whoever does the gold work isn't mentioned here. And Huram may have likely been involved, but just the way they've set up this text, he's, not, he's only listed with the bronze stuff. We know that God's work in us is plentiful. In fact, if you look back over a veteran Christian's life, it's often hard to measure how much of your life has been because God's been part of it and what's not. It's an indetermined amount. Verse 19, then Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of God, all the altar of the gold and the taste. So again, notice in verse 19, the son is now building things. Obviously, Solomon didn't do this himself. Right, But the way the language is put together, Solomon had all the furnishings for the house of God, the altar of gold, the tables on which was the showbed. This is all the golden stuff. But Solomon gets the, the noting or the credit for those things that are pure and perfect. Twenty Verse 20, the lampstands with their lamps of pure gold to burn in the prescribed manner in the front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, of purest gold. Notice the emphasis by the writer on, on the pureness of gold. The trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, the censers, pure gold. As for the entry of the sanctuary, its inner courts and to the most holy place and the doors of the main hall of the temple were gold. No mentions of foundries for verses 19, all the gold stuff. There's no mention of a foundry. There's no mention of how it gets made. Uh, Solomon's the only name that gets associated with it. The sun is the only one that gets associated with the pure stuff. Um, and I, and I, again, the language here I, I think is inspired by God himself, the way they worded this and the way they put it together. Why would it matter to the record keepers who did the gold stuff and who did the bronze stuff? 
So maybe they were aware of the imagery, maybe they were keenly aware of it, and they intentionally put that in there, but I even think that would be inspired. First Chronicles 17, this is what God said about Solomon. We just got done studying this, but I want to remind you. God said, I will be his father and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. So that language God used around Solomon is he is an image of the son, or at the at very best, God considers him his own. He's adopted Solomon. So Solomon clearly becomes an image of the sun, if you look at that reference. The sun does the work for the heavenly. Hurim and the people do the work for the bronze. Together they make the temple happen. The house of God is built in concert between the two. The temple is an image of what's going to happen with Christ. God works in concert with Mary just to conceive Jesus. And God does the pure stuff. But the rest of the world comes around Jesus, the disciples, John the Baptist, um, Salome, Mary. The, the work of Jesus' ministry happens in concert between the pure and the divine and the earthly pursuing God. The church gets built the same way. Quite frankly, your own life, anything pure about your heart, you can't take credit for that. The Holy Spirit did that. But God works in concert even in our own lives as we move towards this image of working with God. So we don't claim our purity, but we recognize where it came from. 21 as flowers. Again, some people see that as an image of creation. God's working at harmony with all creation. Just like Yeshua's gone to prepare a place for us, John 14, 3. Um, here we have this image all coming together. Ezekiel 44, 14 says, Nevertheless, I'll make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has to be done in it. This is God's desire. It's his wish. It has been forever that what he builds or when he builds a house, he, God doesn't need a house. He's omnipresent. The entire vision of the house is for us to understand God. It has nothing to do with God's nature, but it's built so that we can be part of what he's doing. So the church, ourselves, Jesus, the physical temple, God's offering the earthly, fleshly side of humanity a chance to participate in what he's doing. Yet he doesn't need us to participate. And the purpose of this isn't to make God better or to fill some need on God's side, but it is to help us. So God leaves the earthly side, the bronze side of the temple, the courtyard for the care of humans, the work of humans, and the, the amount of ceremony around the once a year Yom Kippur priest walking in and the chance that they'll die if they don't do it right um, is, is really a piece or the idea is they're, they're barely even spiritually... Um, they're going in as a, a covered by their mantle, by everything else, um, covered with sacrifice so that their humanity doesn't wipe them out when they go into the Holy of Holies. And the promise is that we can now go into the Holy of Holies because we've been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a really powerful image to people that understand the Jews in the Jewish temple. And we should take it that way too. When Jesus turns to Peter and says, I say to you that you are the rock on which I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that's a really interesting statement when Jesus is using this imagery of the house of God. Relationships then are a two-way street. The most holy place and the doors in the main hall and the temple were gold and they were open all the time. There's no record in the Bible that those doors were ever closed. The doors stayed open. The veil was the blocking thing. So it's interesting that there are gates, there are doors, and there are golden doors on the building, and there are bronze doors on the courtyard. 
And these things become, again, just like the tabernacle, become powerful images. God becomes the door. There's the way to God that goes through these doors. Exodus 33, the use of door is there in that we do business with God by going through the door. The ark of Noah has a door on it that gets closed. And the only way to salvation is through one singular door in that ark. And Jesus teaches the exact same thing. He says he is the door and the way to life. And the only path to salvation is to come into the Holy of Holies through the door that is Jesus Christ. I'm guessing he's the gold door, not the bronze one, right? The bronze one, we open up our hearts to God, but he leaves open the golden doors so that anyone who wants to come to him can come to him. And the imagery fits with the temple exactly right on track. Here's what's even cooler. Revelation 4.1, when John gets to go to the actual heaven, where this is all just an image of that, he reports that the door is open when he gets there. So again, when we get to Revelation, some of these images will, a lot of these images will connect with Revelation. So when we want to do business with God, the door is always open. The only door that ever closes is the bronze door. Interesting. Second Chronicles chapter 5. Now we get the showcase. Everything they're doing is to get this ark into the building, right? All of this elaborate work. Um, so all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated. So God did that. The father did that. The silver and the gold and all the furnishings. And he put them in the treasure houses of God. What we know from 1 Kings 6 is the whole process took exactly seven years. So this is a divine work that's happening. Uh, we know also from Kings that when they say the treasuries of the house of God, that on each side of the temple was a disconnected three-story set of rooms on either side of the temple. And they were, they were, um, they were put there as like a storeroom. Um, and they brought all these articles and everything that God had done before were brought into these storerooms on either side of the temple building. So they move all the treasures in. Verse 2, Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. Remember when David tried to move the Ark the first time? Uzzah died. Then David tried to move the ark the second time, did it God's way. Everything went fine, and there was great celebration, happiness in all the land. All the people celebrated. Solomon's going to learn from that, and he does it God's way. So the finale of this whole story, none of the work on the house of God matters if you don't put God into that house. And so God has given them an image that he is a covenant that he says he'll reside um, it, again, God's omnipresent, so this is so humans know of a location they can approach God. There's a promise of God's salvation that comes with that. The entire chapter 5 is about placing the ark, the image of God's seat, um, into this place. Again, the ark is not God. God isn't tied to the ark, and God's not obligated to do things when they dance the ark around in battle. In fact, they try that with the Philistines, and God just abandons them on the battlefield. So unlike Raiders of the Lost Ark, where there's laser beams shooting out of the box, that's not the biblical image. The biblical image is, this is a seat, not a container. And so the entire chapter is to place this here. The 12 elders, the governors, you've got the head leaders, the senators, you've got the local leaders, all the governors, uh, you've got the entire leadership structure here for this moment. Verse 3. 
Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast. There's the food part, which was in the seventh month. So seventh year, seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark and they brought up the ark and the tabernacle of meeting and all the holy furnishings that were at the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. So again, bringing them up, bringing them up, bringing them up. They do it God's way. And they've got representatives of a united kingdom there to do this. Verse 6. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted. There's that phrase again. Or numbered for the multitude. Way beyond what's required in Leviticus. Just overkill. Then literally overkilling the... Anyways. Verse 7. And the priests brought the ark of the covenant to the Lord to its place to the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. Poles are kind of, they make, they go out of their way to say things about these poles. The poles extended so the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place. So you've got these little poles poking out, or the curtain was brought to block the view, but the poles on either side could be seen because they stretched this way. So you could look around the curtain and not see the ark, but you could see the poles. Evidence that they're there. So honestly, if you're just looking around the side of the curtain and you see the little end of a pole poking out, it's floating in midair. There's no evidence of what's holding them up. But you know that what's holding them up is God himself. This is a powerful image. I love this one. Right? So there's something there that humans can touch and grab onto. There's evidence of this creator that's inside there. And all you see is the evidence of what he has done. He's holding the poles up, but you don't see the thing doing it. So they can see the ends of the poles. Um, from the front of the inner sanctuary, but they could see not, but they could not be seen from outside. So if you're outside the holy place, you couldn't see them. But if you were one of the priests working on the lampstand, the showbread, you could see around that curtain and see the poles still still floating in midair there. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at the Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they'd come out of Egypt. Interesting. The ark used to have three things in it. You remember what they were? You had the tablets of the law, you had Aaron's rod, and you had a jar of manna that used to be in there. However, they're not in the wilderness anymore. They've gotten a home and a location. So the reminder of provision, God's provision is going to look a lot more mundane or earthly. And their provision is going to be from the land itself that God has provided. So when their crops bear fruit, that's the reminder that God's still with them. And they don't need the reminder of the manor anymore. They don't need Aaron's rod, which was a, if you remember that story, there was some conflict over who would be the high priest. And Aaron was not like fighting the fight. So God stepped in and did this miracle with the rod and basically to say, Aaron's my guy. But they don't need that anymore because generations have passed and the Levitical priesthood is locked in. But they still need the law. They still need God's word to guide them. And, and, and again, when you deal with God's house, what's at the middle of God's house, the thing that we need from God's house is the word of God coming forth from God's house. So those tablets sit in the ark. Nothing was in the ark except for those things. It has come down to this use of this. The poles that are there, um, I already talked about the poles. 
So the showing of the law or the image of it with it, when it says the law or the tablets, it'd be the Ten Commandments. That's, a, again, not the entirety of Deuteronomy, but it is the image of it. Um, it's inside the box, which is cedar, and it has gold around it. Um, if it goes in the heart of the house of God and Jesus, the church, and us are an image of the house of God, it's interesting that, that everything around it goes down to this law. There's a law, there's a box keeping it safe, there's a mercy seat that sits on top of it, there's an angelic host that overshadows it, a room of gold around that, which is incorruptible wood around that, stone and rock that's been carved away from the site around that. Then you got another room, the holies outside that with images of how we approach God. Outside that are these two massive pillars he will establish in his strength, laced with chains of unity and fruits of the spirit all over them. Outside that's a courtyard where the sacrifice can be given, where cleansing can happen and the work of God can take place. Sometimes that work is messy. Outside that is a courtyard where anybody can come close to God. Isn't that cool? But you remove it all back down. All of this is centered on God's word and God's law. Everything, all of it comes down to his word. We cannot, we can't approach God and the Holy of Holies by coming to him through the word of God. We approach it and we have this set of images. We walk inside the building and you want to come close to the ark. You're going to pass this, the incense Sensor, which is an image of prayer. We can come close to the ark with the table and the bread, which is image of fellowship with Jesus. We can approach the word of God with a lampstand that gives us the light or the oil of the spirit. It's hard to read if you don't have light. So there's the Holy Spirit, there's prayer, and there's fellowship. Those three things help us to approach God's word and actually have the heart of God move inside our hearts so we become living temples built up with living stones. Oh, for Jesus to rebuild this entire complex relationship in only three days. But that's exactly what he does. When he defeats sin and death, there is a validation from God the Father that God the Son was actually building a new image of the temple. A pure heart, a perfect heart that death could not hold on to. Of course, the priests are reminded of this and that Jesus, he will establish in his strength. He's going to do all of this on his own. So when Jesus says, I'll rebuild this temple in three days, there's so much depth to that. You can see why the priests got a little angry when he said that. Because they're reminded of that every time they walk past those pillars. And Jesus is saying, I'm the thing God's going to do that will replace this whole system. To an outsider, that sounds scary to anyone who follows Jesus. This is absolutely beautiful. We give up our earthly life and we start living a heavenly one. We wash in the water of the sea, baptism. Jesus gives his life. There's the sacrifice that's given on the bronze altar. He comes down to earth and dies on earth for our sins. And we give our life to Jesus. All of this is a courtyard of believers. Jesus did everything publicly. He did it where everybody could see it. And then he established a church that would continue his work where everybody on the planet would see the work of God and the fruit of God and the unity of God, the chains, the fruit, all of it. For us to have the same regard for the seeds of the word of God in our hearts as they did for this temple is a good step in the direction of holiness. 
that we recognize that what we do is as sacred as what they did when they built this temple. The purifying of your heart to make it a home for the living Holy Spirit, that's an amazing work that you do. It's sacred work that you do. And I think sometimes we forget how holy that is and how glorious that is. It's pure gold. For the precious work of Jesus handed to the church so that you as an individual can, can be establishing the same relations with God, that's the word made flesh. It's exactly what Jesus wanted us to know. John made this really clear. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The mighty, the holy, the glorious work that starts with this temple is exactly the tradition that we're in as Christians. We're the, we're the descendants of this work. Is that worthy of our praise? I think so. I think we can celebrate that. As they could muster any praise that they had, that's exactly what they do. Verse 11. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. In other words, at this point, the divisions don't matter. All the priests are there for this event. You don't get time off for this one. And the Levites who were the singers and all those of Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, none of those divisions matter. All the worship teams show up and do a huge power combo music festival with their sons and with their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linens. Nobody gets to be better than each other. Having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets, they got worship music and they got praise music. Like this is a massive music festival. It is loud. Trumpets are not quiet instruments. Cymbals are not quiet instruments. They made a ruckus in Jerusalem. Praise, celebration instruments, all shifts, all in. This is thousands of musicians playing their instruments at the same time. Amazing. Bigger than anything I've seen on TV in my lifetime. Massive. Verse 13, indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one. This is interesting. Verse 12, they're not as one. They're just playing. But something happens. Indeed, it came to pass as they start doing worship, something special happens. It came to pass that when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound, to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. I think this is a miracle. I think that's what's being recorded here. Something special happened. When all these musicians who don't normally play together start playing together, when all of God's people come together with one voice, and out of this massive music festival, a new song just arises. Something special happens here. It came to pass. They were as one. They make one sound. Do you see the emphasis there? And they came out, and what came out of their mouth, what emerged from this, was for he is good and for his mercy endures forever. Mercy is the image of mercy is what sits on top of the ark. It's called the mercy seat. That before God holds us accountable for the law, that judgment has to get through the mercy of God. Luckily, his mercy endures forever. It never goes away. What they're singing about right now in this physical temple, 
They're singing about the fact that God's mercy doesn't change even though the image of the temple moves to Jesus and moves to the church and moves to your heart. That his mercy is still there and endures forever. They're as one as they do this. And the theme here is the praise of God. Goodness, mercy, forever and ever. No matter what troubles we run into, we can take foundation in that idea. It goes forever. One sound. A spirit of God unites them to have one voice together. You know how hard it is to get two humans to have one voice together? It's crazy. You know how people can't play music together because they simply can't get of the same spirit, the same worship thing? Yet it happens in hundreds of churches around the world, thousands of churches around the world every Sunday. And you'd say, wow, there's secular bands that play together too. Yeah, they have one voice, very different spirit. But this spirit of God endures in the church it endures in our hearts. And sometimes worship has people in the room and they're not worshiping. And, and, I, and I, the, it came to pass thing in 13 is a really important line for me because I've gone to worship and all I'm thinking about is work, thinking of my hobbies, I'm thinking about how tired I am, I'm thinking of how I didn't get my hair combed before church started. This was earlier in my life. But not here. They were all singing with the same word, the same thought. I think God loves this. He loves when us divided humans come together and we're all thinking the same praise at the same time. And what comes out of our mouth is that praise. This is why I recommend to my non-singers when we do worship in the mornings, just speak the words. You don't have to sing them. Just say them. Let them come out of your mouth. So there is this idea that God delights when the people of God come together and his spirit comes in, he does the work, and brings this unity when we do worship together. And I think most people in this room, you've been in that kind of worship before. It doesn't happen every week, but some weeks something happens, and there is a one-voice element, and I think that happens when 100% of the people in the room have their hearts directed to a living God. They're not thinking about work. They're not thinking about their troubles. The cares of this world are outside the bronze pillars. And in his strength, something special happens inside the church. Something pure and holy. And worship is one of the places where that gets exhibited. The unity of the spirit, the fruits of the spirit come out. And there's a joy that happens there. Singers and non-singers alike, the words of God come out as one. For he is good and his mercy endures forever. Just knowing who God is. So when God sees humans doing what we were made to do, like children, no cares, no worries, they're just kids. And we just come to that place where we can just praise and trust in God. I think God delights in that. He's like, ah, finally they've realized what I made them for. Note that in these verses, there's no mention of a particular song that this goes with. These are just emergent words and how it's written. There's also no, no mention of who wrote it or who led it. I think in the church, when there's worship happening, it doesn't matter who the worship leader is. It's not, they shouldn't be famous for what they're doing there. They're simply allowing God's people to come into the presence of God, and they're just starting them off. But the people of God take it over. And I think that's what we see happening here at this worship service that the Bible has blessedly give us, given us some insight into. Um, they follow the word of God. They worship, they unite, they do it in front of God. Then something more amazing happens. First Kings chapter 8, God shows up. Like, so I think this is part of this, this idea that this isn't Solomon's show at this point. Uh, when it came to pass, God took over the show. He stole the show, as Toby Mac says. And it says that that the, that the house 
makes a special point. The house of the Lord, not Solomon's, this is now God's house. He just took up residence, right? Was filled with a cloud. The Hebrew word there is anon, a physical blinding fog. And it's not like a cloud like, you know, like smoke machines. This is not an argument for smoke machines, for or against. But it is this anon that shows up. It is where God sets his rainbow. It is what led Moses. It's what fills the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even enter when this presence, it's like, the cloud has some force to it because they couldn't get near it. It's Mary is overshadowed by a cloud when Jesus is born. There's a cloud that's there at the transfiguration. There's a cloud that's there with Jesus at the ascension. And there's the promise that when Jesus returns, he'll return on cloud. There is a presence or a force that, again, God's doing this for humanity. It's not that God resides in the cloud or that God is the cloud, but he's confirming to the people of Israel that what they did has been accepted by God and that God's overseeing this moment in history, this amazing moment in history. This is the cloud that God does throughout history to show his people that he's in it and this is all about him. He's accepted their sacrifice. He's accepted their praise. Praise is a form of sacrifice that they've made here. And he sees the gold in their hearts, and he's willing to reside in this place. Verse 14, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. He stops their good works. They're done working. He's taken over. I just, we work awfully hard sometimes to make church happen every week. A lot of times believers work really hard to purify their heart. We do a lot of stuff, but at the end of the day, that's not what saves us. It's not our works. It's not the effort we put into doing church stuff. And frankly, it's not Jesus' ministry that saves us. It's Jesus' essence that saves us, right? So it's the ministering stops because at this point, God's just going to bless them for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And again, the way the Bible reads this, it's not Solomon's temple. You see that in history books. The Bible says it's the house of God. It's his house. It's not Solomon's. The work of man steps aside when the work of God begins. Easy, not normal. Here's the scary part for rule followers. It's not planned. This wasn't part of the program. That's awfully hard when the Spirit of God shows up and does something that's not part of the human program. That can rattle some of our cages. Sometimes the Holy Spirit asks us to do things we didn't plan on doing today. Go talk to that person. Go give some encouragement there. Those sorts of things, when you listen to those nudges, cool stuff starts to happen. They do everything they should the way God says to do it, and God confirms it. Nice job, humanity. But the real end result is the presence of God. That's what we're looking for when we do all that stuff. Our works don't save us, but our works are an offering that we give to a God that we love and that we want to show up in our lives. We want it so much so that God's presence in our life stops our ministering to him and he's able to bless us. Isn't that kind of powerful? Like at some point the work is over. Jesus says, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. We do for God everything we can do. We pound it out for God. We work for God all we can. But at the end of the day, what we really want is for God to steal the show, for him to take over and for us to rest in him. When Jesus fills the house, the Sanhedrin should have stepped aside because he would have taken over. When God starts to move in the church, the humans need to step aside and let God do what he's going to do. 
when God nudges you to move, you need to step aside and let God move in your life. It's a super powerful image. It's consistent with all the other images that we see the temple compared with in the scriptures. You move with the cloud and you set aside your service the day the cloud asks you to go in a different direction. So you're able to do it. Or as I like to say, when the Bible steps on your toes, move your toes. It's easier the Bible because you think of a big heavy book. But when the cloud steps on your toes, move your toes. Be willing to move where God has you move. The priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. When God takes over, our efforts and plans don't matter anymore. And that's what we pray for. That's what we work for. And they worked for seven years to get to this point. And you had to imagine the worship was great and the unity of the people of God was amazing. They had to be like, this is the best day ever. And they could smell the barbecue coming after the worship service. But then God shows up and it just blows everything away. I mean, I'm sure the music just stops at this point. They couldn't continue ministering. And the thousands of musicians just end. And this cloud comes and the the priests trying to get, they have to back away because this cloud just takes over. What a moment in Israel's history. You know what's amazing? This is such a cool three chapters. I'm going to end on a depressing note tonight. One generation later, they could care less. Like that's humanity. One generation. These people get old and the younger generation just doesn't even listen to them. Jeroboam splits the kingdom in two. The unity, the fruit, gone. And the northern kingdom just falls away on a sledge going the wrong direction. God is still merciful because remember what they sung? His mercy endures forever. Human sin doesn't take them away from God's faithfulness. In fact, I think it brings us more and more evidence of God's faithfulness. And with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the house of God. We thank you for what you do and how you build a house. Um, Lord, help us to, again, learn from these chapters, see the connections, see the images very complex relationship that we have with you, but you've made it so simple and you've added all the elements to it. And as we understand those elements and we see how they relate to the ministry of Jesus and what you're doing with the church and what you're doing in our heart, Lord, they, they help us grow wiser in our relationship with you. So I pray for each person in this room that they have fellowship with you, that they have prayer time with you, that they have the light of the word of God shining a path for the way Um, a a lamp under their feet, Lord, that we can come closer and closer and closer to the house of God and that we know that it's lined with pure gold. There's nothing, nothing impure about it. It is holy and good. The world likes to call you bad and angry and a hater. And Lord, we know that there's just no part of that in you. There's nothing about your character that's corrupt or horrid. That's our hearts ascribing that to you. So, Lord, we come before you, I hope, with a unity of heart that we just worship you, we lift you up. We know that your mercy endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.